Hello, friends. Have you noticed how much podcasts have grown in popularity over the past few years? We definitely have, and it's insane. We have an opportunity for your business to take advantage of the exponential growth of our podcast by advertising with us. We've been riding the podcast growth wave for a few years now, and we want you to take advantage of this too. We have unbeatable pricing and advertising packages, and we work with you on an individual basis to produce the most effective ad possible for our audience. If you would like to advertise with Forbidden Knowledge News, email me, forbiddenknowledgenews at gmail.com. We look forward to all our new partnerships. Welcome back to Forbidden Knowledge News. I'm your host, Chris Matthew, <clears throat> and tonight I'd like to welcome 32nd degree Freemason, philosopher, historian, also a lawyer. He's the author of several books such as Cinema Symbolism, A Guide to Esoteric Imagery in Popular Movies, and Cinema Symbolism 2, Robert Sullivan. How you doing tonight, Robert? Hey, Chris. Thank you for having me on uh, for Oh, Robert, you froze up there. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, well, welcome. Uh, thank you for joining us tonight. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. And as usual, let's start. You have a very fascinating background. Let's start there. Can you uh, just give us a little bit about your background? What brought you to Freemasonry and what brought you to write your books? Well, right. Um, I had always been interested in Freemasonry. I come from a long line of Maryland Masons. And as a kid growing up, I was interested in cryptozoology, ghosts, the supernatural, UFOs, you know, the, the normal, you know, the run the gamut of the uh, supernatural, as it were. And I, uh, I had always wanted to join Freemasonry. It skipped over my father, but my grandfather, great-grandfathers were all uh, Freemasons. Uh, some of them actually were past masters. Uh, that's the title given to a Mason who has run uh, his lodge as a worshipful master for a year. Um, and uh, it all just got started for me, really. It's something I always wanted to do. I spent my junior year abroad in 1992-93 at Oxford University at St. Catherine's College. And it was there that I really got introduced um, so what I would describe as the influence of the hermetic tradition, the occult hermetic tradition on popular culture, on material culture, on politics, on history, reading the books by people like Peter French, Manly P. Hall, Albert Pike, Francis Yates. Uh, that really interested me. And I just started doing research, independent writing, almost as a side project. And uh, it continued. I just didn't stop. I, I, kept, I kept doing it. Um, of course, I had a life to live also. And when I got out of college, uh, I graduated Gettysburg in 1995. I technically should have graduated in 94, but I took a year off to work in Washington, D.C. But at any rate, after I graduated and before I went to law school, this was 96, this was the summer of 96, um, I was out to dinner with my mother and my father and a mutual friend of theirs who was a Freemason. And uh, I, I asked him, he had the ring on, and I asked him point blank, I said, oh, I see you're amazing. He said, yeah, I've been involved with the Lodge for, you know, 20, 30 plus years. I said, well, I want to join, and I've always heard the term to be one, ask one. I said, so I guess I'm asking you right now if I can join. And he said, yeah, absolutely. He said, let me uh, get the ball rolling. I'll get you a petition in the mail. He said, it moves somewhat slow. 
Uh, remember, this is 96, so this is pre-internet, this is pre-social media, where everything now moves at lightning speed with email. This was, you know, still we had to do things, you know, to, wanted to mail something to somebody, you put a stamp on it and drop them in the mailbox. Right. I got the invitation, filled it out, sent the check in. Uh, I, in October of 96, I went to the committee meeting. They form a committee in the lodge, you know, to make sure, you know, you're okay, you know, you're not, you know, completely crazy or something. Right. And uh, yeah, they voted on me, and uh, uh, I went up in January of '97 to to take the first degree, and I be, I got I did the degree work in '97. Um, in September of '97, I was raised to master mason, and then two years later, I did the Scottish Rite, um, one of the high degree bodies here in the United States. Became a 32nd, and again, as I was doing this, I was just writing, researching. I went to law school. Um, I graduated that in 2000, and it was around the mid 2000s um, that this really started to come to a head where I was still writing and I began putting my research online. The, um, the site back then to use was MySpace, Facebook, Twitter, that didn't exist. I just literally, Chris began posting blogs, photo galleries, just to kind of gauge a reaction to it. Um, and it was just met with overwhelming um, positive reviews and people loved it. I got loads of comments on it. And a friend of mine who was a Freemason uh, who lived out of state saw it. And said, you know, this is really good work you're doing. Why don't you do a book about it? And they kind of, you know, like you see in a cartoon where the light bulb goes off over the character's head. It's something I had planned on anyway. So I just really, at that point, committed to writing it. And my first book, The Royal Arch of Enoch, was published in 2012. It was republished uh, by me in 2016. And as you said at the intro, I've written two other books uh, regarding movie symbolism. And I also have a work of fiction out. So that's kind of a brief background on me. Very good. Now, uh I'm sure many of my subscribers, and I'm sure you get this a lot, have a very negative connotation of Freemasonry overall. You know, they think it's, it's all evil and used for, for negativity. What would you say to that? Well, I would say that's not the case at all. Um, Freemasonry, there, I, I mean, I've been involved with the Lodge for 20 plus years now. I've never seen anything in there that I would describe as evil in any way, shape, or form. Um, it gets a lot of negative connotation. It, 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 it comes from something that happened in the 1820s called the William Morgan Affair. That was really the hallmarker of the beginning of anti-Masonry in the United States. I mean, it does incorporate into its degrees, into its rituals, into its philosophies, many traditions, um, you know, you know, you have obvious, you know, with the Abrahamic faiths, with Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, but you also have lots of incorporation of mystical, esoteric elements, Kabbalah, mysticism, Sufism, uh, astrology, astrotheology, uh, you know, remnants of the mystery schools, Knight Templars. So it does incorporate a lot of these ancient traditions into its into its rituals, into its teachings. I mean, I guess you could say, you know, some people um, see it, you know, they don't like it because it, it, it doesn't embrace any one religion. Um, it's deistic. You can believe in, as long as you believe in a supreme being, you can join. Atheists and agnostics are not allowed to join. Um, but this does rub some people the wrong way because in the rituals, especially in the meetings and the invocation, uh, the, the God, God is invoked as the great architect of the universe. It's just a generic name given to su the Supreme being. Um, uh, but there's no mention of like Allah, Jesus Christ, Moses, it's kept deistic. Um, so that can rub some people the wrong way, but, um, it, it, it is influential. I mean, it has impacted society, certainly in the context of the United States. I mean, I have in my chapter, I have a chapter in my book titled The uh, United States of Freemasonry, where I argue 
this country is a, the world's first ever Masonic Republic. So it does raise suspicion. Um, I understand the negativity towards it. I don't subscribe to it, but I do understand where some of the paranoia com comes from. I mean, there is a lot of Masonic symbolism in the world and uh, it can look somewhat suspicious, especially to the untrained eye. I can't refute that. Now, would you agree that there are some secret societies and maybe some globalists that are using aspects of Freemasonry towards a negative, you know, goal? Well, I would say that anything can be used positively or negatively. I mean, there have been many Freemasons who have been controversial. That's pretty irrefutable as well. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, people always like to turn to Aleister Crowley, uh, people like that, but I mean, J. Edgar Hoover was a very influential, high-degree Freemason who founded the FBI, and let's be brutally honest, I mean, his stance on civil rights is suspect at best. So, I mean, there are controversial people involved in uh, Freemasonry, um, but it's like anything in the world, anything else, I mean, you know, think uh, something can be used positively or negatively. I, I've never, I mean, when I'm, my involvement with Freemasonry, I mean, I do see community involvement. I do see impact on society. I do see, um, you know, influence. Um, I mean, I guess you could craft the argument, certainly, that, you know, there are globalists out there trying to social engineer society. Perhaps they do tr tap into the reservoir symbolism of Freemasonry. That's certainly possible. I mean, you certainly had groups, you know, like the Illuminati of Bavaria, I mean, who were real. Um, and I mean, they, they, their influence, even on the United States, is definitely palpable. So, I mean, it's like anything else in the world. Um, you know, it, it, everything casts a shadow. So um, my, my involvement with Freemasonry has been nothing but positive, but it, it, it does have a controversial side to it, um, just like everything else. Now, you had mentioned that basically our country was founded on Freemasonry. Let's talk a little bit about that. Let's start there. Um, okay. And, you know, also talk a little about um, how Washington was built basically on sacred geometry as well. Yeah, well, that's absolutely correct. Um, from the get-go, the United States is what I call a Masonic Republic. Many of the founders, uh, you know, when I say that, I'm really referring to people like George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, a lot of the signers of the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence were Freemasons. What they ultimately decided to do was they knew they didn't want a monarchy. They knew they didn't want a Vatican-styled organization. So they decided to craft a government around a society that many of them belonged to that promoted democracy, egalitarianism, um, you know, embraced morality. Um, you had to believe in a supreme being to join it. So this appealed to them. So they thought, well, you know, we have, we're founding this new country. Freemasonry officially comes onto the history map in 1717. Granted, I know that it predates that in some form or fashion. But the reason I say that is in 1721, uh, a Presbyterian minister named Dr. James Anderson publishes the constitutions of the Freemasons. I mean, and this almost serves as like the working model for the United States Constitution. Um, I mean, for example, I mean, in that you have the whole, the, 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 the nutshell of separation of church and state uh, comes out of the constitutions of Freemasonry. Uh, the, um, the triple division of government between a chief executive, legislature, and judiciary, judiciary branch comes out of Blue Lodge Freemasonry with the triple division of the Blue Lodge between a worshipful master and two wardens, a senior and a junior. So that comes out of the Masonic Lodge. Um, so for, from the get-go, you're looking at a very deep, 
influential Masonic impact, um, you know, not only in the documents and the government system, but, you know, then you get into what you mentioned, like things like the sacred geometry. I mean, after all, masonry is building, you know, it's civil engineering, it's, it's architecture, it's geometry, it's mathematics. Um, the, the original masons were what you call your uh, operative masons. These are the guys who actually were doing the city planning, the architecture, things like that. So when you get into the template of places like Washington, D.C., I mean, I mean, the, the, the whole thing is, you know, correctly, you're absolutely right, based on Masonic emblems, Masonic symbolism. You have a lot of references to the sun. Uh, the sun is probably the most important symbol within Freemasonry. Uh, I mean, you have the, uh, right there in the, in the heart of Washington, you have the Pythagorean theorem, A squared plus B squared equals C squared. This is also known as the 47th proposition of Euclid. Uh, this is the emblem of a worshipful master and denotes Masonic rulership. This is formed right there in the heart of Washington, D.C., between the White House, the Washington Monument Obelisk, up the National Mall to the uh, United States Capitol, and then the hypotenuse would be C squared. That would be Pennsylvania Avenue. So you have this Masonic solar emblem uh, right there in the heart of Washington. And it's solar because it's the emblem of the worshipful master. He sits in the east representing a rising sun. So, um, I mean, I'm just giving you, you know, one example of it. I mean, you have the United States Capitol building with the dome. The dome is a chamber of the sun god Apollo. Um, you have a lot of the hermetic uh, maxims, the as above, so below. I mean, for example, you have the cornerstone dropping of the United States Supreme Court building on um, October uh, 13th. It's the sun is in the house of Libra, aligning the Supreme Court with the astrological scales of justice in the sky. So you have a lot of that going on in Washington, D.C. When you research it, and this again, this is really the uh, thesis of the Royal Arch of Enoch book, you'll not only find this, these, you know, Masonic esoteric templates in Washington, but you'll find them, you know, literally all over the place. Um, you'll find them here in Baltimore, Maryland, where I am. I mean, you'll find them on the emblems and logos of many of the state seals and colleges and universities. So it's a real deep study as um, to see, you know, how, how deep the rabbit hole goes. And when you become aware of the symbol and its context and how it's used, I mean, a lot of this will open up to you and say, oh, okay, now I understand why that's sitting here and that monument's there and this is sitting like that you know, that was one of my motivation, motivational factors in writing the book was to kind of explain this architectural occultism, as it were. And I, you see as well a lot of Egyptian and, and Babylonian imagery as well. Check out our friends at Linguistity Gifts. Linguistity Gifts is a metaphysical store offering natural gemstone bead bracelets, signature and zodiac, designed and made in the United States as well as raw and polished stones, crystal balls, pendulums, tarot cards, natural crystal points, wands, and so much more. Their beautiful signature design bracelets can aid with creativity, balance, focus, and well-being. They can even customize the bracelets for you. Just send them an email to find out pricing and availability. Visit their website using the link in the description or visit linguistitygifts.com and use coupon code FKN to get 10% off your first order over $20. And right now they are offering $5 off the purchase of two or more bracelets. Linguistitygifts.com Correct. Right, right. The, the, um, the, the Masonic... Uh, the Masonic Lodge draws on a lot of mystery school teachings, um, and you're absolutely correct. I mean, Babylonian, Egyptian, I mean, the entire uh, third-degree ritual 
um, you know, where the candidate portrays Hiram Abiff is killed and resurrected. I mean, clearly you will see fingerprints of Christianity with the Christ story, you know, of death and resurrection. But of course, this is being lifted from the Osirian mysteries of Egypt where Osiris, the Egyptian sun god, is killed and resurrected. Then he's replaced by Horus his stand-in, and he, Osiris goes off to become sort of like a solar god of the dead. Um, and then you have reference to Isis, uh, his wife, virgin consort. Um, I mean, you have astrological symbolism. I mean, Hiram Abiff is killed. You know, he's resurrected by the strong grip of the lion's paw. Again, this is a solar reference to Leo, lion's paw. Think Leo, soul house of the sun. Twelve fellow craft go looking for the dead body. Twelve houses of the zodiac. Twelve apostles in Christianity. Uh, the 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 candidate is concealed. The grave is concealed with a sprig of acacia. That's a flower that grew along the Nile. Was sacred to the sun god Apollo. Uh, the Babylonian influence, absolutely. You get into that with the high degrees, with the construction in in the in the in the Blue Lodge. You're dealing with the building of Solomon's Temple. In the high degrees, Solomon's Temple has been destroyed by Cyrus the Great and the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar. The Jews are in exile in Babylon, and they get sent back to rebuild the Second Temple, um, which is actually called the Temple of Zorobabel, which is literally means the heart of Babylon. So yeah, you definitely see Egyptian solar astrological motifs. And of course, you'll see these fingerprints on Christianity, but they kind of predated. Go back to Osiris, Egypt, Babylon. I think that's pretty irrefutable as well. Now, why is it that, you know, you ask most people and they think, well, we were founded on Christianity. Why is it that, you know, we're not taught any of this in our school books? And why do you think most people think that, you know, we're based solely on Christianity? And why is this a, a secret? Why is it hidden? Right. Um, well, I, I, I don't have a problem. I mean, I think, you know, when you're dealing with like a Christian tenant, you could say like faith, hope, charity, equality. I mean, I think, you know, these are tenants, you know, of, of Christianity. I mean, they are certainly part of it. Um, but, you know, I guess what's not taught is that Christianity uh, borrows itself from a lot of uh, mystery school teachings. Right. Uh, this is kind of like the hidden history. Um, yeah. What, 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 what you can successfully argue, and I mean, I think this is pretty well true, is, you know, you, you know when, when Christianity was, as we know, when Orthodox Christianity was invented, it was pretty much, I mean, it was the Council of Nicaea that codified what became modern-day Christian, Christian Orthodoxy. I mean, now, of course, you have your splits here and there between the Western Church, the Eastern Church, different things like that. But it's really at the Council of Nicaea where you have the hallmarking of the, you know, the, the celebrations of Christianity, Jesus. Um, you know, and, and what many, many Masons, believe it or not, have actually said is, you know, that the, the pagans who created this religion were just relying on the old sun worship. They were just relying on the old mystery schools. I mean, it's because, like, you know, for example, I mean, Christmas, um, I mean, the celebration of birth, the birthday of Jesus, I mean, is a clear reference to the winter solstice, the birthday of the annual sun. Uh, the vernal equinox, the resurrection of the sun is, of course, Passover or Easter, uh, celebration of the spring, uh, you know, the end of winter. Um, so they were just incorporating the old paganism into this this new religion. Um, that's not taught, uh, you know, and I, it is kind of kept secret. Um, I believe personally, just from my experience with it, this is what Mason, the, the, you often hear that Masonry conceals its secrets, even to the Masons. Um, you know, they kind of put you on the path that's up to you to decide, you know, to discern this material. And I believe that this is one of the things the Masonic ritual is ultimately trying to encode is this whole uh, legend what I call in my books is, and I can't think of any other way to describe it, is the born and resurrected solar god man. 
you know, call this figure, hear him a Biff, Jesus, uh, you know, Osiris, you know, it's pretty much the same thing. It all revolves around astrology, astronomy. Um, and of course, you know, and I don't want to pivot too much. I mean, this is, this character is all over the place in cinema. I mean, this is Harry Potter. This is Neo from the Matrix. This is Luke Skywalker, Aslan the Lion, you know, who is scorned and resurrected. I mean, Aslan, you know, is a lion, Leo, uh, who does battle with the Winter Queen. So you'll find this, you know, astrotheological, almost neoplatonic um, imagery in masonry and in the architecture. And yeah, I mean, as far as the United States being a Christian nation, I mean, I call it a Masonic nation. Um, I think the, 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 the lessons of the Masonic Lodge um, are much more impressed upon this nation than the tenets of Christianity. I mean, they did not want, the founders did not want a Vatican-style organization. If they wanted that, they could have had it. I mean, and certainly they were completely open to the idea of um, religious freedom. Whatever your path to God was, was going to be left to you. That comes straight out of the constitutions of the Freemasons of 1721 by Dr. James Anderson. So that's what the founders were really striving for was, you know, a country with religious uh, freedom for all. Right. Now, it, it, do, it does still seem like it was kind of under the, the guise of Christianity. Why do you think, do you think that uh, it was because they think people couldn't handle the truth or they didn't deserve to know the truth? I'm still not quite understanding why it's, you know, why, why most people aren't allowed this knowledge. Well, I think I think a lot of people. I think you are allowed the knowledge. You you can buy books on this um, that talk about this openly. I mean, you can buy books on by Freemasons who talk about it. My book talks about it. Manly P. Hall talks about it. Um, uh, Albert Pike talks about it. Uh, uh, Albert Mackey, uh, he's a very famous thirty-third degree Freemason. He talks about it. There's a Freemason uh, who wrote a book um, called Stellar. I can't remember the name of it. Um, it's like Stellar Masonic Astrology and Stellar Theology. Um, so yeah, I mean, my experience with it is is um, I have no problem talking about it. I my my own experience is people seem to be afraid of it. It's like they're almost well, yeah. Afraid it, of it. it just has a connotation of forbidden knowledge. I mean, you know, never yeah. talked about in any schools. You know, any no. Is you know. It, yeah. It, no. I, I I agree with you. Um. I mean, I think I think it it should be taught, and I mean, I I think there is a huge. I mean, I get into this in my book. Is one of the reasons I wrote it is there is a huge. Um, section of American history that is cut out um, of our history books, especially with American history, by, and it revolves around a man named DeWitt Clinton, who is one of the most important uh, political figures in United States history. Um, he was a Freemason. He is the guy who is carrying on the Masonic tradition uh, after the death of Washington in 1799, and literally, Chris, using Masonry to form the nation around. Um, he is erased from our history books. I mean, he is pretty much the reason why today we have the two-party political system is because of DeWitt Clinton. Um, and he is literally written out of our history books. Um, and I think it's very unfortunate. The information is out there. I mean, unfortunately, most people don't want to pursue it. Even Masons, right. um, you know, I, I pursued it just because I was very interested in it. But um, when you get into this forbidden knowledge with the architecture, and especially when you get into these astrotheological doctrines with Christianity, Judaism, I mean, you, you have the founders of Christianity and even Jewish rabbis saying this, you know, and they said it openly. They said, look, you know, within Christianity, I mean, all these Abrahamic faiths have a mystery school. I mean, Kabbalah in Judaism, you have astrology or astrotheology in Christianity, and you have Sufism in Islam. 
And they all say, they said, you know, this is information that people can't handle. You know, the profane masses as what Albert Pike would use. And the, the knowledge has to be kept secret because people don't want to hear it. And they and when they do hear it, a lot of them can't handle it. Um, I think it's fascinating. I talk about it. I have no problem coming on shows such as yours and talking about it. But I, I think there's just a lot of people that it can be upsetting to. Um, I, don't, I don't think it should be that way, but it is. Uh, I've encountered it myself. Very good. Now, uh, let's talk for a bit about your first book, uh, The Royal Arch of Enoch. It must be a, a, a very pivotal um, sort of ritual in Freemasonry to write a book about it. Tell us a little bit about that. Oh, absolutely. It, you, you make a great point. I believe it is pretty much the premier ritual in all of Freemasonry. And the reason for that is you have to understand a little bit what's going on inside the Masonic ritual. Um, I'm going to try to condense this as best I can because this is a very long story. In the Blue Lodge of Masonry, this is the first three degrees of entered apprentice, master, mason, fellow craft. I just put it out of order, though. Um, in the third degree, uh, the architect of Solomon's temple is Hiram Abiff, and he possesses the secret word. It's the name of God, uh, and it's, called, it's what's generally called the Tetragrammaton. Uh, and he has it. And it's this word. It's through the correct pronunciation of this word that all wisdom and knowledge is made possible. And he has the word and he, does, he keeps it to himself. And as he's finishing the temple, three fellow craft want the word for themselves. And he says, well, I'll give it to you, but I'm not going to do it until after the temple's complete. That's not good enough. So they murder him. And the word is lost. And you will repeatedly hear this term, the lost word of a master mason. Fast forward to the high degree bodies in the Scottish Rite and the York Rite, the word is recovered. This name of God, the secret name of God is found. Uh, and it's found in the Royal Arch of Enoch ceremonials. It's the 13th degree in the Scottish Rite. It's the seventh in the York Rite. They are, that is pretty much the end of the Masonic story. That is really the highest degree of Freemasonry. I know a lot of people out there will say about the 33rd degree, 32nd degree, and that's true. But philosophically and ritually speaking, the 13th degree is the highest degree of Freemasonry. That is the end of the story. The reason that ritual is so important is for several reasons, and I will, again, do my best to condense this. Number one is it's, it's the recovery of, found, of, your, of founding what was lost. I mean, think of the Holy Grail story or, you know, the Golden Fleece. You're finding what was lost in the Blue Lodge, the lost word of a master mason in the name of God. The degree ceremonial part of the high degrees was crafted in the, in the, on the continent of Europe in Paris, France in the 1730s, 1740s. And this is the main thesis of the book is the ritual is incorporating components of the lost book of Enoch, one Enoch, Ethiopic Enoch, um, which was lost to history at the time. Ethiopian uh, one Enoch was not uh, returned to Europe until 1793 by a guy named James Bruce. And even then it wasn't even translated into English into 1823. But this high degree ceremonial back in the 1730s was incorporating elements of the Book of Enoch. So the, the, my book presents this historical anomaly that there must've been a copy of this book out there that these ritualists were using to craft this uh, ritual around. Additionally, the symbolism and the philosophies coming out of this ritual are literally what was being used to found the United States around. Um, it's this one particular high degree that so much of the symbolism, so much of the political theory, uh, DeWitt Clinton, people like that were using to really craft the nation around. I can't stress that enough. Um, and that is really the main thrust of uh, the Royal Arch of Enoch book. It's nearly a 700-page book. Um, it was first published in 2012. It's, I republished it in 2016. And it was literally the result of 20 years of writing and research. 
Now, you had said that was the highest degree. You don't think that there is some other hidden knowledge beyond the 32nd degree, like when you hit the 33rd degree? Right. The, 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 the 32nd degree, a lot of the degree work um, in the Scottish and York Rite, actually, the, 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 the degrees are numerically higher, but the degree, what's going on inside the degrees actually takes place prior to the events of the Royal Arch of Enoch. The events of the Royal Arch of Enoch is they're building the second temple, the Temple of Zorobabel, and they find a treasure vault. They find a trap door in the ground and it springs, and inside is a subterranean treasure vault containing uh, the name of God, which is the lost word of a master mason, and the two pillars of Enoch which he has used to trick God by inscribing the wisdom that he gained from this group of fallen angels known as the Watchers uh, in the Book of Enoch. He has uh, inscribed on these two pillars the mathematical wisdom and the seven liberal arts and sciences in order to trick God. Um, when God tried to destroy this wisdom with the flood of Noah, Enoch decides to thwart the will of God and conceal this wisdom in this subterranean treasure vault. The 33rd degree is honorary. Um, it's by invitation only. You cannot solicit it. Um, and a lot of the degree structure and rituals, um, really, some of them take place before the Royal Arch of Enoch ceremonial. So it really is um, the premier degree in all of Freemasonry. Uh, I can't stress that enough. And it's especially what's going on with the recovery of the name of God in the Tetragrammaton. And again, it's so much of the symbolism is coming out of this degree. And again, it's the 13th. And I mean, it's one of the reasons why the uh, number 13 is all over the United States seal. Uh, it has to do with this degree. Um, it's the name of God. It's the Kabbalistic Shekinah, uh, the recovery of the divine presence um, that's going on inside this ritual. And again, why it's so critical is it's incorporating components of the Book of Enoch, which under a traditional historic standpoint should not be happening. Right. Now, you, you mentioned the Book of Enoch. What are your thoughts on the theory that, you know, the knowledge of Freemasonry is passed on from fallen angels from the Book of Enoch? Right, right. Well, that's that's um, that's part of the controversy uh, with it, and that's part of the anti-Masonry is in the Book of Enoch, the wisdom is considered divine. Um, in the Old Testament, it's considered evil. Um, but and this is you know you know if you read the Masonic monitors, they talk about this that Enoch was going to preserve this you know quasi quote unquote demonic knowledge uh, for future generations, and uh, that's exactly what happens. He he puts. Um, in, in, in the Masonic liturgy, he puts the name of God on a golden delta and buries it in the subterranean treasure vault beneath nine arches uh, with the two pillars of Enoch next to it. And it's through the correct pronunciation of this word uh, that the uh, pillars can be restored. In the Masonic war, uh, prior to the Masons getting there, the treasure vault is breached by two previous people um, or entities, or well, one's an entity at least. Uh, the first is the Greek mathematician Pythagoras, who has his eureka moment, right, in the vault of Enoch. says, I have found it, meaning the name of God, says it correctly and restores mathematics back to mankind. And the other character is Hermes Trismegistus, a god uh, coming out of Hellenistic Egypt, who goes into the treasure vault, correctly pronounces the tetragrammaton, and restores the seven liberal arts and sciences back to mankind. Um, so then you get to the Masonic ritual, the Mason discovers the subterranean treasure vault, and by beholding the tetragrammaton becomes the symbolic Enoch, Pythagoras, Hermes Trismegistus, godlike figure. And the way it was crafted in the early days of the country was by doing this, this implied, this was by implication, gave you this, what I would call divine right to rule as a citizen king. 
Um, and this is what uh, DeWitt Clinton was modeling the nation around, especially coming out of New York State, was that if you had gone through this high degree, you were given the express warrant to rule over other people. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's very fascinating to think that the Masons were preserving perhaps this lost wisdom. It's certainly part of the ritual. What, what you come to figure, or I guess that's probably not the right word, is kind of come to understand, at least in my opinion, um, in researching all of this, I believe that the ceremonial is actually trying to um, convey lost yet legitimate wisdom. I mean, if you are familiar with the ritual ceremonial, uh, the original working, the working of the ritual as it is now, the vault is discovered by Jewish temple builders. When the ritual was originally crafted, it was discovered by a Catholic Knights Templar. And it begs the question, naturally, is this ritual trying to convey to you or to the participant that this is some legitimate lost history, that the Templars really did uh, uncover some subterranean treasure vault in uh, the Holy Land, because um, that's where the ritual takes place on the, on the Temple Mount. So that'd be fascinating to think that, um, you know, you know, the, 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 you know, the Templars may have actually discovered something. Is this ritual trying to convey it? Um, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, you definitely have um, masonry, the rituals trying to be the preservers of this lost symbolic knowledge, astrotheology, astrology, the Book of Enoch. Yeah, I, I really don't dispute that. It's uh, one of the, you know, when I joined it, I mean, I, it's, it's a fraternal order. I joined it not knowing all this. But when I got involved with it and you begin reading the books like the Manly P. Halls, like the Albert Mackeys, like the Albert Pike, Pikes, you'll start to uncover that these rituals are really trying to encode these deeper, dark secrets, um, esoteric secrets. And uh, I believe that to be the case. Very good. Now let's shift uh, into uh, some cinema symbolism. Now, uh, you know, sure. movies have had a huge impact on society since they first started coming out with movies. Um, would you say that they're using literal magic in these movies? Yeah, I think, I think that is a good way of putting it. I mean, I think that movies are a very powerful form of media. I think it's possibly, arguably, one of the most powerful forms of media ever created. So yeah, I mean, it is akin to magic and sorcery. Uh, if you want to look at, if you just want to strip it down for a minute, I mean, you're going into a darkened theater with pews uh, to watch, to receive light, uh, to watch a movie. It's almost akin to going to church. If you think about it, where you're going to church to sit in a pew, uh, you know, to listen to gospel tales and, and, and the preacher preach, you're going to a movie to watch perhaps a morality lesson, uh, drama, a horror film, um, uh, perhaps life-changing experience. Many movies have, are very impactful upon society and upon the viewer. So yes, I, and, I, and I do believe that these cinema, these movie makers use these myth mythologies, mystical doctrines um, as a form of magic to invest their movies with a sense of mysticism in some cases. And I, I, I say in my books, it's akin to mythology making. Uh, that these these movie makers are using uh, these symbols and these ancient religions and these ancient doctrines and mysticism and the occult uh, to imbue their films with more than just a story about, you know, some space opera and, you know, Star Wars. I mean, it's really more modern day mythology. It's a real deep study in comparative religion. But yeah, I, I definitely have no problem saying it's a, it's a form of magic or something like that. I, I have no problem saying that. Now, how far does this go back? And, you know, when did they figure that they could use these symbols to enhance, you know, the movie experience? 
Well, right. I mean, it's a very good question. I believe that this go day. I mean, you know, I think it's in movies from day one. Uh, I mean, you will find uh, in, you know, pre-movies, uh, you will find an obsession with William Shakespeare, with the occult, with witches, with ghosts, with uh, magic, with fairies and goblins. Uh, we turn to the works of Mozart, the magic flute, which has mythological, Illuminati, Masonic elements embedded in it. Uh, the works of uh, the uh, the Ring Cycle by Richard Wagner is, of course, the Odinic mysteries. Um, you know of uh, you know of the Odinic mystery school. Uh, we have um, in Hollywood. We have very early movies uh, dealing with uh, Fritz Lang, for instance, Metropolis, uh, which is very Gnostic, uh, a very Gnostic movie. Uh, we have um, again another early movie was the Nosferatu movie, which was based on Stoker's Dracula, which uh, is very mystical. Um, that embeds uh, the Dracula story by Stoker is covered with esoteric symbolism. The, the deeper meaning of that story is, is about um, Eastern mysticism, mainly Blavatsky's uh, theosophy movement invading and intruding upon Victorian Christianity. Uh, that's really the subtext of Dracula. I mean, Frankenstein, again, an early universal horror movie. Uh, Frankenstein's monster is a capitalistic golem. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I mean, from the very early days, I mean, The Wizard of Oz, um, L. Frank Baum, uh, the, the Baum story, Baum was in Blavatsky's theosophy movement. So we have a very deep uh, symbolic trove of initiation into the mysteries, the obtaining and finding of Gnosis uh, in the Wizard of Oz. You have the wizard, uh, Oz the great and powerful, Oz the demiurge, uh, the Gnostic demiurge. So yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, even in the early days of Hollywood, this is not a modern uh, invention. From the early days of Hollywood, you will find these mystical elements uh, going on inside of movies, uh, no doubt about it. Now, what would you say of, of elements that some movies are like a form of mind control or maybe even a way to steer humanity in a certain direction? Yeah, I would be a little um, skeptical of the term mind control. Um, I, you know, I, I think they can, I, th I think they're really using this symbolism to, I mean, it, uh, you know, mind control, I think of something like the Manchurian Candidate, where you flash the Queen of Hearts or the Queen of Diamonds, and the person goes out and shoots somebody. Um, I don't think movies really are designed to do something like that. They can be influential. Um, you know, I would be hesitant to use the term mind control. Um, but there is no question of their importance and how influential they are in modern society. Um, yeah, I think that's pretty irrefutable, but I, I kind of would shy away from the term mind control. I mean, I've never watched a, a movie, um, you know, where I found the hidden symbolism and thought this was being done to mind control. I thought it was trying to convey esoteric imagery and convey some esoteric meaning, but I wouldn't necessarily call it mind control. So what about, uh, you know, a way to kind of steer uh, interest in a certain direction, uh, maybe uh, certain ideas, political stuff like that yeah yeah i mean again i wouldn't i wouldn't necessarily call that necessarily mind control i mean certainly you have um like i said when you say mind control to me i think of you know the manchurian candidate you know if you walk out of a movie theater and may shoot somebody you know may shoot a burger king and he did it because of the movie then we could start talking mind control but i mean i i think that um i mean i i do believe in you know you know globalist elites who are trying to social maybe engineer society but I mean, like when, when I analyze a movie and I find out chemical themes or repetition or something like that, I've never I've never thought it was done for mind control purposes. Um, I, I you know I, I think I think the closest you could probably come to that is saying maybe 
to the effect of they're playing with the subconscious mind. Um, I'll say that, um, that a lot of the imagery in films are archetypal. Um, and this, and they're aware of this, uh, and, and they are using archetypes, uh, to influence or to impress your subconscious mind. And it's because almost the archetypes are a form are, are, are drawn to them. Um, the archetypes are, you know, come out of the subconscious mind, thus their subconsciousness. We don't know about them, but they're there and movies can really play upon the subconscious mind through archetypal imagery Th that I definitely believe in, but I wouldn't say that's really akin to mind control. Um, but they do, I, I don't dispute that they do that though. So what about uh, introducing new technologies in a subtle way? Have you ever seen anything like that? Sure. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, th there are instances where like, for an example, like a movie like Yankee Doodle Dandy, I mean, it's clearly propaganda, propaganda, uh, war propaganda. Yeah. The introduction of, um, of, uh, they did the, in one of the transformer movies, I think it was the second one with the rail gun, uh, where in the movie they, they used the rail gun to shoot the transformer. I think they were fighting on the pyramid of Giza of all things. And they used the rail gun to shoot it off. And then, and it was, it actually invented it. And the Navy actually came forward and said, you know, we were using the movie to introduce the rail gun to the world. Um, so yeah, they definitely, things like that do occur. I know when the X-Files was on the, on TV, the FBI repeatedly reviewed the scripts for accuracy, things like that. So, yeah, I mean, there's definitely can be a government involvement with it. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, they can use it to, um, you know, like I said, to introduce something. There is, I mean, and I, I do believe it's an interesting phenomenon, phenomena, and I do talk about it, is the whole idea of movies uh, being predictive mechanisms. That's what I was just yeah. about to ask you about. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was about to ask you, what about uh, predictive programming and shows like The Simpsons that like, seem to have predicted the future, you know? Right, absolutely. There, 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 there is something to this. Um, I don't know if movie makers have a crystal ball or are given information. I find that hard to believe. But it is without question that there are, especially when you get near the events, um, there are elements of... Um, uh, you know, there there are things that have come to pass. The movies have been prophetic. Uh, that's irrefutable. I propose the hypothesis that it has to do with the collective unconscious, uh, what Plato called the theory of forms, and that is that um, if if these if these archetypal imageries are inherited, can somehow by making a piece of artwork, i.e., a movie, can you subconsciously be encoding it of uh, future events and not even being aware you're doing it? Because um, there is a very eerie synchroni synchronicity to a lot of this. Uh, I mean, for instance, the the um, Simpsons episode you're talking about where, where the 9-11 appeared, I believe the episode is called uh, Homer Simpson versus New York City. And this is, of course, where Bart waves the money in front of the... Well, I was actually thinking about the one that uh, <laughs> one too, yeah. Right. Well, that the episode where Bart waves the money in front of the magazine where it's nine and then 11 and then the 11 is formed right. by the World Trade Center. I mean, there's some very interesting things about that because um, that where it gets really creepy is that episode was released on September 21st, 1997, uh, almost four years to the day before 9-11. Then two years later on September 21st, 1999, you had one of the great predictor movies of um, 9-11 being released, which was Fight Club. Um, I mean, where you have, you know, Tyler Durden there at the end talking about the, you know, we're at ground zero, uh, the destruction of the financial buildings. I mean, even Operation Latte Thunder, 
where they take out the uh, the piece of artwork, the corporate artwork. That's obviously supposed to be the sphere uh, in between, you know, the plaza of the World Trade Center, um, you know, which they destroy. So we have the, uh, you know, we have Fight Club being released on the same day two years later of, of the Simpsons episode. And then two years after that, you have almost to the day 9-11. So there is this very uh, creepy, um, almost impossible to explain uh, timeline synchronicity going on here. Uh, and it, it's happening. I mean, there it is. I can't explain it. I, I don't know why it is, um, but I can't write it off. It's not a coincidence. Um, I, I was talking, I'm actually writing my third cinema book right now, and uh, there's some really cre crazy ones regarding President Trump. I don't know how aware you are of these. Um, oh, no. Can you talk about those? Yeah, well, there was a, uh, there, there's some really crazy ones with President Trump. There's um, three, um, three really strange ones. The first one goes back to the 1950s where a, um, it's a TV Western television show called, um, oh, what's it called? Uh, I forget the name of it. I'd have to go look, at it, look it up for you. Um, but it, there's a Western TV show. It didn't last long. It was only from like 57 to 59. Um, and there's an episode where a character named Trump comes along and he's a prophet prophesizing the end of the world. And he basically says, the only way to save yourself is you got to build walls. I'm here to build a wall and you've got to build a wall in order to save yourself. And this is in the late fifties. Then you fast forward to, um, I believe it was 1999 or no, excuse me, 1990. You had the sequel to the gremlins movie come out, which was gremlins to the new batch. In that movie, you had a Trump analog played by John Glover named uh, Daniel clamp. Um, and he hangs out in the clamp tower and uh, there's a scene in it where Clamp is coming out onto the street, and it's clearly supposed to be Donald Trump. Uh, and, and the news reporters, they want to talk to him and say, hey, let's go talk to Clamp, see what's going on. Uh, the, the, Grem the gremlins are destroying his building. And he stands there talking, and the, and the two news reporters put the microphones uh, to his face, and the numbers on the microphones are 11 and 9, uh, November 9th, which is when Trump won the presidency. Then... You have in 2010 this same imagery going on where Trump actually made a television commercial for Serta mattresses. Uh, and in it, he's talking up to one of the counting sheep. He's saying he's trying to hawk Serta mattresses and the sheep saying, oh, you're going to put me out of work. Everyone's going to fall asleep immediately. And they walk down a hallway and the sheep have numbers on them. Uh, they're standing outside of rooms and the two sheep that are shown, again, are 11 and 9, November yeah, 9th. Yeah, the date that he won the presidency. I mean, that's just really too bizarre that you can write off as coincidence. But I'll be the first to admit, Chris, I can't explain it. Um, and I wish to God I could remember the name of that television show. I just put it on my Facebook channel, uh, on my Facebook page, uh, the, the thing with um, uh, the Trump Western. If you go to YouTube, type in uh, Trump Build Wall Western, and it'll come up. I just can't remember the name of it right now. What are your thoughts on the possibilities of CERN maybe messing with our reality? Yeah, I think that's very, I think that's very possible. Um, and this gets me to a subject that I've just begun talking about, which is the Mandela effect. And um, when I first heard about this, uh, I was skeptical of it. And I said, I think most people are. Uh, and it's right to be skeptical about it. I was like, oh, come on, you know, maybe this is just a bad memory or something. Um, but, and, and what's really strange about this is people remember it uh, differently and they swear to it. Uh, and, and, yeah, I mean, they're definitely, I mean, I think even scientists admitted that in 2011, maybe 2010 or nine, um, our reality may have merged with three others. 
Um, and this was a science, like quantum mechanics put or something put this out. And then of course CERN with the, you know, the Hadron Collider. Uh, yeah, who knows what kind of havoc that's wreaking. I, I was skeptical of this, but I've experienced it myself. Um, and the main one I, I, I know that I saw and I remembered was the Sally Field Oscar speech, where in 1985, she won an Oscar for Places in the Heart, and she delivered one of the most famous plays. She was, she was giving her speech, and she said, you like me, you really like me, uh, which has been copied all over the place. Um, and one of the main movies that this was parodied in was a movie that came out in 1994 called The Mask with Jim Carrey. And there's a scene in it where Carrey is is doing this and, and, and uh, all of a sudden the statue pops up and he gets handed a statue and he takes it. And he says, thank you. And this, this audience comes up, make-believe audience that's supposed to be watching. He says, oh, thank you. Thank you. You like me. You really like me. And he's obviously impersonating uh, Sally Field. Right. What comes out now, in, in my reality, this line was never said. Uh, this has somehow been changed. Now Sally Field says, um, you like me, you really like me. No, she says, you like me, right now you like me. That's never the way it was. That's never, ever, ever the way it was. <laughs> I, I went back and watched the Jim Carrey movie. That's changed now. The mask, he no wow. longer says, you like me. He says, you love me. He says, you love me. You that was never the same. I saw that movie in the theater, and I remember the line was he was impersonating Sally Fields. And in my eyes, this kind of proves that something is happening because what movie then or what speech, better said, is Jim Carrey impersonating? What Oscar winner is he impersonating? And the answer is no one. So that scene in the mass now makes no sense whatsoever. And I know I saw Sally Field deliver that Oscar speech. I remember it. I remember when it happened. Uh, I was 1985. I remember watching it. And they're showing the rerun of it. And they're showing a the holding Oscar. And you're saying, you like me. You really like me. And everyone's clapping. Apparently, that's changed now. Um, and we have the Mandela effect. This is what Doc Brown and Back to the Future talk called the ripple effect. That if you change the one, now we've changed the Jim Carrey one where he says, you love me which makes no sense whatsoever. So I don't know what's going on. The one thing I can tell you that is strange in all this is that Sally Field's brother works at CERN for whatever that's worth. Huh. Uh, yeah. So interesting. Uh, yeah. Like, you know, and like I said, I, another one for me was um, the cereal brand. And I, and I, you know, people have said to me, well, is this time traveling or what's going on? I, I think it has to do with a parallel dimension or parallel dimensions in interfacing. That That's to me what it is. I, I, I'm a, I think time travel may be real, but I think maybe we can all agree if people are going back in time, they may not be changing cereal boxes. Uh, you know, maybe it's a side effect or something. I, I grew up eating Captain Crunch and it was never Captain Crunch as it is now. Um, right. C-A-P hyphen N was always Captain Crunch. I mean, I, I, I ate this cereal every other day when I was a kid. It was Captain Crunch. I walked by it in the supermarket. I pulled it off the shelf. It was Captain Crunch. Now it's Captain Crunch. No, <laughs> no, this has changed somehow. So, you know, to me, this is to do with bleeding realities coming through um, or an interfacing with a different timeline or reality. I can't explain it, but I definitely believe it's happening. Well, CERN itself has some pretty heavy imagery, you know, even outside the building with the, the statue of Shiva, you know, the destroyer outside, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I've, I've, actually, I've actually heard that they're actually trying to open portals in that place to speak to the demons uh, from the Book of Enoch to gain wisdom. 
uh, that they're actually trying to open, you know, this is, this is akin. What they're trying to do is, is doing what John D tried to do or did, uh, Dr. John D the Renaissance Kabbalist and astrologer and court magician to, uh, Queen Elizabeth was, he was summoning these demons, uh, and angels to gain knowledge. And I've, and you know, I've even, you know, heard from mainstream sor sources that this hadron, this collider is used, is being used to open realities, uh, or open portals to the, to another dimension to speak to these Enochian watchers, these demons. And if that's the case, I mean, who knows what the hell kind of side effects are happening. I know Sally Field said that line, and I know along the way, reality has changed. And I damn well know that Captain Crunch was once spelled Captain Normal, not Captain. So I can testify something strange is going on. Yeah, I would agree. Something strange is definitely going on. Now, to get back to uh, the topic of movies, what is the latest movie you've kind of dissected and taken a look at? Oh, boy. Uh, yeah, that's a good one. Good question. Um, I'm actually writing Cinema Symbolism 3 right now, and I have like a want list of movies that I, will, I want, I'm, I'm, I'm going to watch. I've seen ads for them. I, you know, I know there's going to be symbolism. I even read a little bit about it online. Um, I guess one of the ones that I'm really going after is the late, not the latest Star Wars movie. I haven't seen Last Jedi yet, but um, The Force Awakens has a lot of esoteric imagery in it. Uh, that's a very agnostic film. A lot of elements of Gnosticism in that. Uh, that's one I'm taking on. That's a recent movie. Um, I have yet to see it, but I know it has some alchemical themes in it, just from what I've seen of the previews and, and the little bit I've seen is The Shape of Water, uh, Guillermo de Toro. I, I saw um, in Cinema Symbolism 2, I analyzed uh, Crimson Peak, which is overloaded with esoteric imagery. That one is just goes off the charts for um, hidden imagery. So I'm going to take a look at The Shape of Water. I haven't seen it yet, but I'm, uh, I'm most eager to see that one. Uh, the latest Star Wars movie is one I'm taking on. Um, I'm going to do the, uh, I took one in Cinema Symbolism 2, uh, some of the um, David Lynch material, so I'm going to return to that. So yeah, um, uh, the Bates Motel television show, uh, Hitchcock uh, incorporated a load of esoteric imagery in a lot of his films, and they carried this forward with a TV show that aired called The Bates Motel, lot going on inside that. So yeah, that's just some of the stuff I'm looking at for Cinema Symbolism 3. Um, I'm working on that actually as we speak. That's something I'm writing uh, right now. Now, uh, superheroes is really big right now. Have you kind of dissected any of the new superhero movies out lately? Yeah, I, 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 these are ones that I've been meaning to watch. Um, I've always been, uh, when I was growing up as a kid, I was a big uh, fan of the DC material, much more than the Marvel stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, when you're dealing with a lot of the, I mean, with a lot of superhero uh, material, I mean, absolutely, you're dealing with loads of archetypal imagery, uh, loads of ancient mythology uh, with superheroes, uh, things relating to psychology, the shadow self, uh, you know, um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, superhero movies was something uh, that I took on in the first movie book. I took on a little of the Batman mythology. Uh, but yeah, um, you know, the idea of the higher self, the higher consciousness, uh, I took on, uh, in, in Cinema Symbolism 2, I took on Watchmen, uh, which was Alan Moore, which is loaded with all kind of esoteric imagery. I call that one a conspiracy smorgasbord. I mean, that one just has all sorts of uh, hidden little... Now, uh, yeah, that was a very that. interesting movie. Let, let's talk about that one for a second. What, yeah, what, I mean, I mean that one, that one right there, I mean, that, yeah, the, the Watchmen movie, I mean, that has, I mean, things related to, um, you know, the apotheosis of mankind. 
uh, with uh, Dr. Manhattan receiving uh, superpowers. Um, I mean, real like a, like a Christ-like uh, solar imagery. I, I like his the the uh, the symbol that he chooses for himself, which is a Masonic symbol, uh, which is the point within the circle that comes straight out of Freemasonry, and again is denoting the solar resurrected God-Man, uh, which is of course what Dr. Manhattan is. Uh, when he first appears, he appears cruciform in front of the sun. Uh, if that wants to tell you anything. And then, and then I like um, the whole thing with Ozymandias. Um, you have this whole idea of this Masonic uh, sort of, you know, Egyptian conspiracy going on behind the scenes. You, you have, you know, Egyptian symbolism in the Blue Lodge. The high degrees are crafted by the Jesuits uh, in the 1730s, 1740s in Paris, France. Uh, when, when they're going through Moloch's mail, um, there's two pieces of mail in there that are interesting, uh, involving conspiracy. One is from Ozymandias' uh, Egyptian Corporation or the Pyramidal Corporation. And the piece of mail right behind it is from the Jesuits. Uh, I thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, yeah, just a great movie. Um, I really liked it and uh, lots of esoteric imagery going on uh, when you take a look at Watchmen. Now, what about, uh, you know, of course we have to talk about The Matrix, the, uh, one of the oh. ultimate red pill movies. Uh, what have you seen in that? Oh, my goodness gracious. Yeah, I mean, that, that to me is, uh, that is a movie that is overloaded with esoteric imagery. Um, if you are interested in an ancient theology and an ancient religion, or it's probably not a religion, that's not the right word, um, that really is Gnosticism 101 on film. If you want to watch a Gnosticism proper movie, check out the first Matrix movie, because from a, I mean, a Gnostic standpoint, that has everything you want in it. Um, and that really is what I would describe as your Manichaean, Valentinian uh, strain of Gnosticism. Uh, if the viewer is not familiar, Valentinian, uh, Valentinus was a Gnostic philosopher who said that this reality is an illusion, uh, that you escape it by seeking spiritual gnosis. Uh, and, you know, you know in, in the Valentinian system, the person who is sort of the illuminator, the person who wakes you up is Jesus Christ. I mean, you just look at the Matrix movie. I mean, you have you have everything right there. I mean, you have the illusionary war world of the Matrix. It's all make-believe. You have the real world of spiritual gnosis. And, of course, this echoes the teachings of Valentinius that says you're part of the world. You're in the world, but not part of it. Uh, and, of course, this is what Neo feels. He's in the world. He's not part of it. So he takes the red pill and escapes and goes into the real world. And of course, we later find out that the illusionary world is created by the architect. Of course, in Gnosticism, this would be the demiurge and uh, you know, the creator of the material false reality. And in Gnosticism teachings, the, uh, the demiurge is assisted by a bunch of, I guess, you know, angels and demons that are called archons, which sole purpose is to keep mankind su suppressed. And of course, these are the agents in, in the movie. And then you have uh, you know, Neo as the Christ savior figure, uh, you know, what, what is it where he is uh, even called Jesus Christ by the guy uh, who knocks on the door at the beginning. He says, you're in my own personal Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, Neo, Neo lives in room 101. Uh, that is a computer binary uh, for the number five, I believe. And since computers count zero, that is the sixth. Uh, that is number six. And of course, Neo is the sixth iteration of the one. And then when Neo, I mean, Neo, you know, when he wakes up to the real world, he's listed cruciform into the light. When he goes onto the bridge of the Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the, the nameplate, I believe, says like Luke 311, which is, again, a Christ reference to Neo saying, you know, all dark entities will bow down before me. 
And then, of course, you know, Neo goes on to, you know, become, try to become the Christ Savior. He's going to awaken mankind from their stasis. And then, you know, at the very end of the movie, flies off, as the, flies off into the heavens at the end, uh, echoing Jesus. So, yeah, from a, uh, from, if you're looking to see Valentinian cosmology on film, uh, the best place to look is the first Matrix movie that really, and it has the Manichaean element of light versus dark, good versus evil, where the machines are dark. You know, and the, the, the crew of the Nebuchadnezzar are, are forces for good, forces for light, forces for enlightenment. Um, you, you definitely have an, an analog with the Morpheus figure uh, who would be sort of, I would say, would be the equivalent of the Hermes Trismegistus magician character who prophesies the coming of Jesus. Morpheus is pro- prophesizing the coming of the one. Um, another element of Gnosticism that's very important is dualism, the union of opposites, uh, the name Morpheus. I mean, in mythology is the God of dreams, yet in the Matrix, he's the guy who's going to bring you out of your dream state, bring you to the real- reality, bring you to the truthful consciousness. So again, just to wrap up, uh, from a Gnostic, Valentinian, Manichaean standpoint, the Matrix is very overloaded, very overwrought with esoteric and occult themes and symbolism. Very good. Now, we have a few minutes left. There's so much more we could talk about, but I'd like to kind of end on the symbolism of Disney and Disney World. I mean, it, it, there's some fascinating, uh, you know, occult symbolism going on there. Right. Well, Disney, uh, Disney does get a bit of a bad rap. A lot of his movies are overloaded with archetypal esoteric imagery. Um, I should point out that Disney was not a Freemason. Um, this is a misconception. He was in a group called Demolay. That's absolutely true, which was sort of the, the best way for me to describe it is the Masonic Boy Scouts. Uh, and this had a very uh, deep influence upon him. In fact, uh, there's actually a drawing out there. I have it in my book uh, of um, a drawing uh, Walt Disney did for Dad Land. That was the guy who ran it at the time uh, of Mickey Mouse in the Demolay De regalia. Um, Disney, you know, when, when you're getting into the fairy tale movies, things like that, you're dealing with a lot of um, archetypal imagery. That's what the fairy tales are. Sleeping Beauty, yeah, Cinderella, uh, movies such as that, Snow White. Uh, you're dealing with a lot of counter-reformation themes. Um, but, you know, Disney movies do tread on the occult and mysticism. I mean, you know, you had that really dark phase of Disney where, you, where they were trying to get away from the child's movies and appeal to adolescents. It didn't go over so well. But, um, yeah, I mean, you have the, uh, the Witch Mountain movies, which I take on. Those are really overloaded with a lot of occult themes, witchcraft, UFOs. Um, very, very, I talk about it in, in the books. We won't have time to get into it. Um, but then you get into the, the, the Renaissance with Disney, with uh, The Lion King, for example. Um, I mean, again, a retelling of the solar Egyptian lore, Osiris being, uh, you know, Mustafa and Horus being Simba, you know, the, the uh, set Typhon character being Scar. Uh, the death, you know, the death of Osiris, the Horus stand-in, uh, their solar avatars. I like it in that movie where uh, they, they're looking out and, and it's the elephant graveyard. And if you're familiar with solar iconog- uh, iconography and the movements, the solar ecliptic, uh, the sun rises in the east, is at the south in midday, sets in the west. The one place you'll never find the sun is the north. Uh, the, the north is where the sun can't go. And you'll even hear them talk about this in The Lion King. They said, oh, what's that over there? They said, that's the place of darkness. That's the elephant cemetery. That's in the north. We can't go over there. Just stay away from it. So the retelling of the Egyptian, uh, Osirian mythology in The Lion King. But yeah, uh, Disney, I mean, Disney uh, put out uh, National Treasure, uh, which is uh, the retelling of the Royal Arch of Enoch ceremonial. 
Uh, the national first national treasure movie is a Masonic ritual put on the big screen. Uh, the Masonic ritual is the recovery of the Masonic Templar treasure in a subterranean treasure vault beneath the Holy Ground. Well, what's national treasure? The recovery of the Masonic Templar treasure beneath the Holy Ground. They said it in New York, which is a direct homage to this person I mentioned earlier named DeWitt Clinton. So yeah, a lot going on with Disney. Uh, I talk. I have a whole chapter on Disney and cinema t symbolism too. So if you're interested in Walt Disney, by all means, check out uh, CS2. Now, yeah, what about uh, Disney World and uh, its architecture? I know there's something interesting about Epcot Center. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, well, what, what's it's Epcot Center? It's we won't have time to get into it. It's a deep, long story. But um, <laughs> the guy, no, it, it is. I get into it in cinema symbolism too. To make a long story incredibly short, Epcot Center uh, was designed by a guy named Buckminster Fuller, um, and Buckminster Fuller uh, has a lot in common, believe it or not, with Dr. John Dee of all things. Um, Buckminster Fuller was a mathematician. He's often called the Benjamin Franklin of the rocket age. And he was heavy into mathematics. Um, and believe it or not, his formula parallels, comes up with the same thing that John Dee came up with 500 years later. Uh, it has to do with uh, the uh, way the universe was created by God. It has to do with alchemy, the perfection of numbers. Um, and Buckminster Fuller designed Epcot Center, which is fascinating because it does tie into John Dee, uh, because Fuller and Dee almost walk parallel in their mathematical theories. Very interesting. Like I said, there's so much more we could talk about. I'm definitely going to have to have you back on. I want to thank you again for joining us tonight. Well, thank you, Chris, for having me on Forbidden News Knowledge. It was a pleasure to be here. I know this uh, interview was a couple months in the making. I appreciate your patience in working with me. But, yeah, absolutely. It was wonderful to be here with you tonight. And uh, anytime you want to have me back on, we can continue the conversation with masonry and cinema symbolism, anything you want to talk about. Awesome. Very good. Well, you have an excellent night, Robert. Okay. Thanks, Chris.